Well, I want to start today with our scripture reading. This is from Philippians chapter 4, and I'm reading from the NIV. Here's what Paul writes. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. God, we thank you that you inspired Paul to write down these words. And Holy Spirit, would you continue to speak to us through your word? And would you mature us as we seek to follow your son, Jesus? Amen. Well, we're in a series on discipleship. And I want to start with some words from and share these words with you from Dallas Willard. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who identify as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom into every corner of human existence. So just to let that sink in for a moment. That the greatest issue in the world, in our world today, he says, is whether those who call themselves Christians will actually become disciples of Jesus. So we've been asking in the new year, what would that look like here? And what if the, the greatest need of the church is not more people, more money, better buildings or programs, certainly not more prestige, And what if we were to spend our best resources and offer our greatest sacrifices and pour our hearts into this one thing, making disciples, not converts to Christianity, not just people who make the cut to get into heaven when they die, but deeply formed, lifelong apprentices of Jesus. Now, what we're looking at today, and we're going to get into that Philippians text in a few minutes, is one of the least talked about underappreciated threats to this mission. And I'm going to try to introduce this by way of a story. Early in our marriage, Allie and I got to go skiing with her family. And I have, I've shared before here and there how much I love to ski. Well, I hit the jackpot with my in-laws. Like they're all great skiers. And on this particular day, on this particular trip, I was skiing with Allie and her mom. And we were headed up to the top of this mountain where all the best snow and the, you know, steepest runs were. And they were kind of looking to me to provide um, sort of directional clarity along the way, to find the best runs. And then I think the key part is just to make sure that we're gonna have a safe path down the mountain, right? Because at the top, you get to the summit, you got lots of expert terrain and unmarked obstacles and cornices and cliffs and you know stuff like that. So we're riding up the lift and I see off to the right, I just, this beautiful, incredible, untouched, pristine looking powder. There there were no tracks that I could see having skied into. Nobody had skied it up. The snowboarders hadn't ruined it yet. We have any snowboarders here? I still, I still love you. And I see you. I see you. 
Snowboarders hadn't churned it all up, and so I was like, this is going to be the perfect run. Why no one had ever had skied it yet, I didn't really think about that or get that far in my, you know, my logic. So I convinced Allie and her mom to trust me and to follow me on this expert-only run, because look at that fresh powder. Well, as soon as we do, I figure out why we were the only ones who were skiing it, because beneath this layer of perfect-looking powder, there were rocks and trees and stumps. You couldn't see it on the surface, but it was there. And so I ski in first, and um, once I recognize this, before I can actually like look up and wave off Allie's mom especially, like, please don't you know, find another way down the hill, she drops into this run, and about three turns in, she hits a rock and ejects one of her skis, and she starts sliding down the mountain headfirst, and she's not stopping. Like, she just keeps on sliding. I hear Allie like, Finally, about 200 yards later, the slide stopped and I caught up to her and we don't need to go into any more of the details here. That's irrelevant to where the sermon is heading. But let's just say we literally all bought helmets at the end of that day and I wasn't invited to play Mahjong with the family that night, but she was okay and we eventually were okay. What I thought looked beautiful and perfect and, and safe on the surface was actually a dangerously thin layer of snow. And maybe you can kind of see where this metaphor is headed. Things are not always as they appear. Sometimes what we see on the top layer can look so inviting and safe and perfect and beautiful, but, but just an inch below the surface, what you have is a completely different story. And when it comes to our lives, what looks on the surface like this veneer of success and togetherness and perfection and happiness and maybe even spiritual maturity, but under the surface, there's anxiety, addiction, anger, affairs, emotional immaturity, chronic loneliness, unforgiveness. One of the least talked about but greatest threats to deep and growing maturity in Christ is that we settle for surface change. We settle for dangerously thin, this shallow version of discipleship, and we miss out on the deep, under-the-surface transformation that God created you and me for. Pastor and writer Pete Scazzaro talks about his own journey of waking up to this shallow discipleship, and he, he talks about one of his aha moments, and I want you to see this. He said, what was most confusing, and this was him talking about his experience of church, what was most confusing was the disconnect in some core members of the church who outwardly were on fire for God and yet were experienced by others as judgmental, unsafe, and unenjoyable to be around. Anybody ever felt that way before around church people? Like not in this church, but other churches, right? Because that would never happen here. So in recent months, our leadership has been talking about this, and this is really starting to hit home for me how I can be growing in theological depth, in religious discipline. I can commit to more activity in the life of the church and yet never actually get around to dealing with the interior stuff that's going on in my inner world. I've been taught the spiritual disciplines. I've been challenged to grow in my passion for God. But what if the people closest to me, starting with my wife, do not experience me as a more loving and self-aware and actually dealing with my own inner struggles kind of person. So there's this disconnect between so-called spiritual maturity 
and emotional maturity. Now, part of this actually goes all the way back to the Greek philosopher Plato, who taught that the emotions were to be distrusted, that feelings and emotions, and for that matter, our bodies, are all inferior to the spiritual life. And through the centuries, we've just assumed that emotions like sadness, fear, anger, anxiety, that they're not just less than spiritual, they're actually in opposition to the spirit. And so we ignore pain, we dismiss depression, we run from loneliness, we avoid doubts, we deny sexuality, and it's no wonder that so many Christians are living these thin, shallow lives. And yet when we open up the Bible, what we find is that God, who is a person, God is an emotional being. When God looked out over all that he had created in Genesis 1, we're told he saw that it was good, very good. And otherwise, in other words, God delighted in what he had made. Then a few chapters later, as God surveys the damage done by sin and by the rebellion of his people, we're told that God regretted that he had made human beings and his heart was deeply troubled. Later in Exodus, God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Then later in the prophets, God says, for a long time I have kept silent, but now like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant, or, or the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he accomplishes the purposes of his heart. God is an emotional being. Jesus himself says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Our savior, the son of God, who shed tears and grieved and was moved and felt compassion and was angry when the innocent suffered and when they were beaten unjustly. This is the one in whose image you were fashioned. God created you to experience the range of emotions that he experiences in his heart for you. So what would it look like to go beyond shallow discipleship and become a more deeply formed, emotionally healthy follower of Jesus? That's our direction. That's our theme today. And one of the leading voices around this, he's written a number of books, is the man that I mentioned earlier, Pete Scazzaro. Here's what he writes. An emotionally healthy disciple, and if that's an uncomfortable phrase, don't let that trip you up. They intentionally open the depths of their interior life, their history, their areas of brokenness, and their relationships to be changed by Jesus. Now, I'm just guessing that at this point, some of you are kind of wondering, like, what's this got to do with the mission, like the main thing of making disciples. Like, what, how, why do we got to talk about this? And as we said, in some churches, um, in some church circles, we've been taught to actually mistrust emotions. They're, they're unreliable. Frankly, they're, they're counterproductive. They're unspiritual. But here's the thing, and so many of you know this to be true, whether you would say it this way or not. What we refuse to own can end up owning us. When we refuse to take ownership of pain and loss and anxiety and even our past, when we don't recognize the power they have in our lives, when we stuff them down or we spiritualize them so that we don't ever actually have to deal with them, they can end up dealing with us. And they can begin to spill out in relationships with the people around us at work and at home and different contexts. In fact, what can happen in the church, and often this is not coming from a mean-spirited place, but when someone is struggling with, let's just say, anxiety or depression, often the first thing we do is we go to Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything. All right, you don't have to be anxious. 
Just let it go. Give it to God. In fact, we might finish, our, uh, finish off in the way that Paul finishes this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and petition, in every situation, present your request to God. In other words, you just need to pray about it, right? You're anxious, you're depressed, you need to pray more. A good friend of mine, Rhett Smith, is a therapist in, in the area. And he actually used to be on staff here at the church. And he describes Philippians 4 as the infamous anxiety text. Because anyone who's ever suffered from anxiety and goes to church has likely had these words quoted to them before. Right? The implication being if you're anxious, if you're depressed, or you're dealing with emotional distress, the problem is your faith isn't strong enough or your prayer life isn't deep enough. And mostly you just don't trust in God enough. Like if you just had a little bit more faith, you wouldn't be such an emotional mess. And so for much of my life, that's, that's kind of what I thought, even if I didn't verbalize it that way. If I really trusted in God, if we really trusted in God, then we shouldn't have these worries or struggle with those anxious thought patterns. If I'm feeling depressed, then I should just rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. And so we need to learn about this. I have so much to learn about emotional health and how we can drop this stigma and how we can be a community where it's okay to not be okay. Our elders had a retreat this last weekend and we were talking about this. Researchers are describing a coming tsunami of emotional and mental health struggles and that COVID didn't just cause all this, mostly it brought it to the surface. And right now there's a growing conversation in our schools around mental health. A few days ago, just a separate conversation, I was meeting with every pastor of every church in this community, kind of a round table, open-ended discussion. What are the pain points in this part of Dallas? And how, as faith leaders and churches, can we be a part of like bringing hope and bringing healing? The number one topic, nothing else came close, was emotional and mental health. And there's so much that I don't understand about this. And we don't know how to talk about it in the church which isn't that odd? Shouldn't this be the place of all places where we can name these things and talk about them and be vulnerable and open without any fear of being judged? Shouldn't this be the one place where it's okay to not be okay? And I say this as someone who is just beginning to learn how to bring my interior life and my anxieties before God. I don't think I've shared this story before, how when we were interviewing for the job here, both Allie and I had a pretty strong and clear sense of call as we made our way through the process. But somewhere in between saying yes to this job and when we actually got to Dallas four months later, I went through a paralyzing season of anxiety. There were days when I couldn't get out of bed, couldn't stop crying. For weeks, Allie basically put our family, we had, we had newborn twins at the time, and she she carried our family on her shoulders. I started seeing a counselor and learning and just working through these cognitive exercises that would stop that downward spiral that just made me anxious and depressed. And I can, I can mostly laugh about it now, and I can't believe I'm actually telling you this, but when we came out here to film the video, some of you may have been a part of the church back then when there was the video to introduce us. And um, the, I mean, the whole point of this video was to try to impress you and show you that you could trust a 34-year-old who's never led a church, never really led anything, that he has what it takes. 
Well, as soon as we get off the plane in Dallas at DFW, I mean, still thinking about that part of Terminal C or at, at DFW is like traumatic for me to think about this. But we got off the plane and the moment we got off the jetway, I have a breakdown and I'm bawling and I, I don't want to get into the Uber or whatever like ride share. And I'm telling Allie, I want to go back home. I want to get back on a plane. We're going back. I can't do this. And Allie's like, we can't go back now. Like the ships are burned. Like we're here for the video. So I show up to film this video and I'm depressed and I'd lost 15 pounds and I wasn't sleeping. And the whole time, uh, Reed Slaughter, some of you may know him, he was directing this video, this film shoot. And just along the way, you know, he's trying to be encouraging and he's like, okay, Brian, can we get a little bit more energy out of this next take? We'd film it for a while and he'd be like, okay, wait, wait, hold on. Brian, can, uh, can you just kind of pretend like you're happy to be here? Let's film that again. Brian, can you just basically be a little bit more like Allie? Because she was the rock star of the whole thing. By the end, they're like, maybe we should just go with Allie for the job. Even this week, I was, you know, talking and sort of mulling over this with some people about whether I should even share this story. Is it TMI? Is it going to make you think less of me or lose trust in me? Um, one close friend, and I'm so grateful, but he encouraged me to talk about this. And he said, I think it's important for you to share because sometimes leaders need to go first. And I can also tell you from this, you know, eight and a half years later, that with God's help and through counseling and an amazing wife who is far more uh, emotionally self-aware, I have found incredible freedom. I wish I could tell you that I don't struggle with anxiety anymore. Uh, even in the lead up to this sermon, there was a night earlier this week when I just, I, I could not sleep. My mind was racing and, I, you know, I got into the catastrophizing and just sort of spiraling downward. And I, I realized that I was anxious about preaching a sermon about anxiety. Well, back in our text, look at how Paul ends this passage. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Which I find this to be a fascinating text. The Apostle Paul, who, by the way, wrote these words while sitting in a prison cell. Uh, he's bound in chains. He's been beaten. He knows his life is in danger. His friends whom he, love, wh whom he loves, who aren't in jail, they're being chased down and persecuted and tortured. Paul, who earlier in Romans chapter two says, pray for me for my anxiety. Pray for my friend Epaphroditus who is going through incredible distress. He's depressed. Pray for him. Paul invites us in our anxiety in our emotional distress, to practice thinking about what is good and true and noble and what is love. And now 2,000 years later, we're learning all about the neuroplasticity of our brains and how thinking about certain things and thought patterns that focus on what is good and loving and true can actually begin to rewire the neuropathways in our brain. It's almost like Paul was kind of maybe onto something. He was the first neuroscientist. So one of the ways we can grow in our capacity to not just ignore anxiety, but to begin to work through it is to help one another think about what is true and what is right, that God is love and God is with us 
that he will never abandon us. He is with us in every moment. Doesn't mean he's gonna zap the anxiety away. Doesn't mean the depression's just gonna disappear. Please don't let me, don't, don't hear me say that. Some of you in this room, you have struggled in a way that I will never understand. Some of you have lost a person that you loved and their depression or their mental illness didn't end until they went to be with Jesus. But of all the place, I mean, shouldn't this be the community where people can bring these hurts and their anxieties and their bouts with depression and whatever burden they carry and we can be unveiled and real and honest with one another? Because we were never meant to carry these burdens alone or to suffer in secrecy because the church doesn't know how to talk about it. Now, real important disclaimer. Uh, We never force people into this kind of emotional openness. Love doesn't work by force. One of the marks of a healthy community is that people are never coerced. They're never forced to do something that they don't want to do, even if that's the step of vulnerability. That freedom is what differentiates a healthy church from a cult. You're not manipulated into self-disclosure that just doesn't feel right for you, whether that's in a community group or alpha or a discipleship conversation or grief share, but you will be given freedom to begin to unlock what is true of your interior life at a deeper level than maybe you're accustomed to or used to, and that might involve risk for some of you, for most of us but you'll never be manipulated into doing that against your will. And um, there are moments when full transparency just isn't appropriate or honoring of the situation. When your niece, whom you love, invites you to her first ever piano recital at whatever, Moody Hall or something, and, and I mean, she misses every note and could not be more off the mark. And afterwards, she asks you, you give her the flowers, and she's like, what did you think of my solo? This is not a time to say, Penelope, as much as I love you and I wish I could say it was beautiful for me to be authentic to my truest self, I just can't do that. I mean, I've heard diesel engines more on key than you were, right? That's not the time for transparency. And there are contexts in business and public life when it's just honoring of others to have a more guarded response. But when when I get to be around someone who is so grounded, and secure in their identity before God that they are willing to be vulnerable and open without guile. When you're around someone like that, it's like a refreshing gift in this culture that is so obsessed with optics and image and hiding. And if we live in this place of constant hiding and surface level image management, then we're gonna miss out on what God, the love that God invites us to experience in community and most of all in relationship with him. Just imagine the freedom of not having to pretend every time that it's okay to not be okay. That's where the deep work of transformation begins. John Orberg tells this story about a couple he knows where uh, both the husband and wife, they had secrets that were creating this distance in their marriage. Husband had this job that had him traveling all the time. And on some of these uh, business trips, he would stay in hotels and he would, um, he would watch porn. And he knew that this was just not just hurting his own soul, but it was destroying their marriage. And one of the hardest things he ever did was to tell his wife about these secret struggles. He was so ashamed, like he couldn't, he couldn't even make eye contact with her as he was confessing to her. 
He asked for forgiveness. He promised her that he would seek out help and accountability, something like celebrate recovery, that he would do whatever was needed to overcome these habits. He had no idea how she would respond. I mean, he pictured a hundred different scenarios. He knew she'd be crushed. She'd feel shocked, wondered if she would despise him. But when she responded, it was in a way that he had never imagined. His wife got really silent. Her eyes began to fill with tears. And then softly, she started to tell him a story. And it turned out she had secrets of her own. When she was in high school, uh, she had been abused by an older man who, who betrayed his position of trust in her life. He robbed her of innocence and she'd been carrying this burden and this shame and this remorse over that abuse in secret for 15 years. But because of her husband's willingness to come clean, she gained the courage in that moment to be open with him. It was painful. It was messy. It involved all kinds of vulnerability and this fear of being maybe unloved in return. But this couple experienced a level of healing and closeness and intimacy with each other that they had never known before. And to this day, they would tell you that the decision to stop hiding was the greatest gift they ever gave their relationship. Because we cannot be fully loved until we are fully known. We cannot be fully loved until we are fully known. And yes, that's the kind of thing that's built over time, the ability to trust that a person or a community or even a church is a safe place to let your guard down and to bring to light these struggles and these hurts and, and these emotional wounds. That's not, that doesn't happen overnight. But imagine a community of Jesus followers who so believed they were loved by God, not because of anything that they could ever earn, that they were willing to go beneath the surface and to drop the masks and to get honest about their struggles and their wounds and their anxieties and to begin the deep work beyond the shallow, thin surface. Imagine the healing and the hope and the light that might break through that we might be a city shining on the hill. So Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to yourself. You have loved us and you are with us. You know us fully. There's nothing we can hide from you. And we ask that you would help us to move beyond the surface and to invite you all the way in. And we pray that this could actually be a church family where people begin to find healing and freedom, where there's no stigma or fear of being judged. Would you do that deeply formed work in our midst? And maybe it begins today, Lord Jesus, with a conversation or taking a step to let someone in. We love you, God. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.